And the beautiful thing about us as organisms is that we can adapt to almost anything given the right support. And there was always someone there to support me, even when the family wasn't. You're a high achiever. On paper and through the eyes of others, you've made it. Congratulations. But the truth is you feel unwanted, unworthy, and unlovable. You always have, but you hide it well. Welcome to the Trauma Hiders Podcast. I'm Karen Goldfinger Baker, and this is a podcast where high achievers like you finally reveal what keeps them up at night that no amount of money or recognition will fix. I'm also making it my business to speak with people who get you. Hell, I get you. I am you. So get your best hider's face on, sit down, and let your guard down. What's on the other side of this shit will change your life. There are so many ways people like us fuck ourselves over, but let's start with five ways. When you know them, maybe you'll finally stop doing them. Over on my website, you'll find a free download listing the five ways your fuckery is getting in the way of the next level of your success. Grab it now at karengoldfingerbaker.com. My guest, Will Reason, is the co-founder of Trauma and Somatics, a somatic coach training. What I love about Will is his curiosity, wonder, and magic, all wrapped with a safe, warm, brilliant, caring ribbon. Will has always looked to decode the science and language of humans. And with a tender, beautiful heart, he discovered that the answers are all here, right inside of our bodies. I'm glad Will is here on this planet. And I'm glad Will is here today, connecting people to the magic of being alive. For some this conversation has the potential to be one of the most uncomfortable conversations they've ever experienced. Welcome, Will. Thank you, Karen. It's a yeah. pleasure to be here today with yeah. you. Yeah. Yeah, you too. This is fun already. <laughs> I totally agree. <laughs> yeah. I'm sitting in my office slash what used to be boys playroom, and there you are in your mother's living room. I'm in my mother's office, actually, in, yeah, in Virginia. Nice. Really cool. Mm -hmm. So, Will, how did you get here? Why trauma, trauma and somatics? I love this question. How did I get here? Right. Yeah. There's quite the story. And I'll see if I can, I'll see if I can summarize some of it. Early childhood was wondrous. My mother was an art teacher at a, at a Waldorf school. Kimberton is the name of the Waldorf school. Um, one of the largest Waldorfs, I think it's the first Waldorf in the States. That meant that creativity, curiosity, play, imagination, wonderment, stories about fantasy and mystery and, and things were a huge part of my childhood. And, and so that curiosity of mine was born out of this exploration play, explore, use our imagination. We didn't have a television until I was, I don't know, 11 years old, 10 years old. And we definitely didn't watch TV. I mean, maybe once a year at the grandparents' house, we'd watch a couple of movies to provide context, you know? So I used my imagination a lot. And, and we moved, let's see, we had lived in 10 different homes by the time I turned 10. 
not counting small apartments that we, we lived in all over the East Coast and a little bit in the Midwest. And it wasn't until around 11 or 12 that life was, you know, life was beautiful until then. I, I would call it beautiful. There was very little challenge. And around my teenage years, things, challenge started in my life. It was the beginning of what led me to where I am. So I spent some time living in a number of different group homes, foster care facilities, place for troubled youth here in uh, central Virginia. And I experienced a lot of really significant abuse and trauma while I was living in those places. When I came home from that, my parents began a separation process that was ongoing for a few years. My father transitioned to living as a woman and began the process of gender reassignment surgery. And you know, I skipped a number of grades in school. I dropped out of high school for a while and ended up going back only to drop out again and get my GED. And it wasn't that I wasn't smart enough to do the work, but what I've come to learn is that with traumatic experience comes disorganization. That disorganization shows up in a lot of different ways in life. And so for me, it was, I was present with other things when I was at home. I didn't apply myself to, to school while I learned an enormous amount. <laughs> so coming out of that, I went into exploring consciousness, altered states, I might say, which led me to studying mysticism, magic, an assortment of different cultures. I wanted to be a cultural anthropologist for years. Joseph Campbell's work and Manly P. Hall's work and people like that that went really esoteric in their studies. That stuff fascinated me. And the origin of humanity, really. What makes us do what we do? And I've been fascinated with that for years. And it was more of a hobby and an exploration as a means of, of escaping being with what was happening inside of me. And that led me to psychedelics as altered states. And that was another good escape. But that came to a head when I was arrested for selling some of my medicine, my pain medicine to an informant. And that, that was one of these catalytic or these moments where like a fulcrum point, I can look back and go, well, that was, that shifted some things. And I couldn't lean on the things that I was leaning on to avoid or turn away from that which had been too much. And so I began doing some of my own work around those things. And the more of my own work I did, the more I created. I mean, I was continuously creative in my life throughout, throughout all these years. The more of that I did, and the more of that work on myself, the, ex the inner exploration I did, the more I realized I wanted th that I was naturally predisposed to be able to, to be a helper of sorts. I always thought it would be psychology. My mother's a, a psychotherapist and a trauma specialist now, but she wasn't at the time. And I always thought, you know, one day I'll stop running around and playing and I'll go get a real job. <laughs> <laughs> And, and I got older and I got older and yeah. I continued exploring the world. And that day didn't necessarily come the way I thought it would. <laughs> uh -huh. And I discovered that there was something called coaching. I worked with a set of mentors and they taught me psychology and they were Jungian leaning and it was a husband and wife team. And the husband, he was... He studied Milton Erickson's work pretty extensively. I said, that was the beginning for me of the apprenticeship of sorts for learning 
this material. Although I'd done a lot of self-study prior to that, those are the first two real mentors that I worked with, physical people. And I was about 100 pounds heavier then. I weighed right around 300 pounds. Well, about 80 pounds heavier than now. But I lost about 100, 110 pounds total over the course of a year and a half after I began working with them. Yeah. And it wasn't that I, I did lots of workout routines or diet ex- dieting or anything like that. What happened was I began attending to the emotional suppression that I'd been doing for years. I had so much built up inside my body and they got me connected to feeling language, emotion language, not just logical cognitive language, which I was really, really good at. <laughs> and that opened me up. I thought, oh my goodness, here's a model. They worked over the telephone with people all over the world and they charged an hourly rate at the time seemed incredible. It was $150 an hour. And, and, but for me at the time when I was in my life, that $150 an hour seemed enormous. You know, $30 an hour seemed great if I could make that. And so I began working with clients. And some of the first clients I worked with were collaboratively with my mother. We would do collaborative work. She brought me into her therapy office and I got to work with some of her clients, some pretty complex cases too. Wow. Uh-huh. And so I, I got to dip my toes in to the field that I thought the door was closed to because I just wasn't willing to do what was necessary through, with school. And, and I, got, I realized that there was a different way. It was another pathway for me to be able to do this work. So as I was exploring... I realized I really wanted to have some sort of formal training to be able to call myself a coach. So I went through a coach training with a school called IPEC. And I learned the coaching framework and model, which is very similar to NLP with some other stuff kind of intermingled in there. Socratic method of asking questions and how to help to elicit the response from the client and all of those things. And that just rounded out what was already innate for me and put language to it. And so I began working and I was working with clients all over the world. I decided I was going to go to Peru and study shamanism and have a, have my own alchemist journey, so to speak. And so I went and I lived in Peru for a year. And while I was there, I worked with a few clients here back in the States and some people there. I studied Amazonian shamanism and ayahuasca. I, I made a pact with the tree that glows in the dark. I fasted for 12 days. I drank poisons and all sorts of fascinating things that the shamans use. And (laughs) (laughs) amazing. All in the name of experiencing the world and exploring consciousness. I was asking people what happiness was to them while I was there, because there's no real definition for happiness. And if we look at the dictionary, it's the state of being happy. It's just the state of being happy. And I thought, gosh, well, that's a terrible definition. If, we, if you read Anthony DeMello's work, I don't know if you've heard of him. He's an interesting fellow. He talks about how most people de- like define happiness by the, the opposite or the absence of it, the converse of it. And that was my experience when I asked people this question. It was purely a, happiness is defined by that which makes us unhappy. It's the contrast of, because people didn't have a really good language for it. And, and I thought that was fascinating. What is this? So to round out the story, when I came back to the States, while I was gone, my mother introduced me to Peter Peter Levine's work, Somatic Experiencing is the name of the modality. 
And I audited one of the modules with her virtually. And I realized, oh, this is the language for shamanism. This is the language that the mystics were already defining, but this is using science. This is the map of us as an organism. And so when I got back to the States, I met a wonderful woman, her name's Ariana, and she and I embarked on the three-year practitioner training, which we ended up doing in two because of the way the dates lined up. That changed our work significantly and it changed me forever. And I began this deeper or this deepening into the journey of embodiment. Wow. Love this. Yeah. Yeah. So being here, present moment inside my body, what is that? What does that mean? And what is it that happens when I sit in myself with you, when I'm here with you, right? There's a resonance that exists, right? And so I became, I started getting really curious about this. Okay. Who can I learn from? Who, how can I deepen in this? And that changed my work. And I, I stopped going from short-term work or one-off client work to really deep, long-term work. So depth over breadth. I came across Rich Litvin's work and I was like, here's a model for depth work. That's special. And so I began creating my life like that as a practitioner. And so now I, I, it's a year minimum, sometimes two or three with people that I spend. And, and we're really deeply exploring all of these patterns, the shapes that we create, the emotions that we have. How did I become the shape that I am today? And, and as I become aware of myself, there's this process of unfoldment takes place. And what happens in that? Who do I become? What am I in the process of becoming? And so after Ariana and I came through this, that training, she and I decided that we had to pass this on to other practitioners. There was nothing that was teaching this out there. And there's nothing out there in the coaching industry at all teaching this material. It's for therapists. And, and I see a need because most coaches, I want to be careful with how I say this, a lot of coaches mean well and take on more than they realize they can do because they just don't have the training. There's a gap in that, in the industry. And so I felt passionately about this, that something has to be done. Yes, thank you. I mean, having been both coach and client and someone living with trauma, unknowingly, I have been re-traumatized by someone who, right, who took me on and who took on my whole lived experience. And yet, while in the, in the process of holding space for me, actually, like, my trauma way flared up. I didn't even know it at the time. I, of course, made myself a piece of shit client. And the truth was, you know, I, I didn't realize this is actually triggering for me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Most people in the helping profession don't know the nuance of those things. Right. They, don't, they don't know what to pay attention to or look for. And they don't know how to assess for those kinds of things. And so, yeah, Ariana and, and I, we, we would, we kind of, we would, go round and round and talking about this. And finally we were like, okay, we have to do something. We have to do something. And so we did. And it's just the beginning, in my opinion, we'll see where it goes from there, but that's how I got to where I am right now yeah. in the, the cliff notes version. <laughs> yeah. I have a lot of questions. What got you to the group home? Yeah. That's a great question. Yeah. Well, 
when I hit adolescence uh, and my hormones changed or began to fluctuate, I think that there was a lot going on between my parents. My, tra- my, my father was traveling a lot and my mother, I think she was teaching at a school back then, but she was struggling with some PTSD from things earlier in her life that mm. were un- undiagnosed as such. And I was finding myself pushing against the world. You know, it was, there was a developmental phase where we we go to push away a little bit in a defining of like ego development, healthy ego development, of course. And that was very challenging for both my parents. My father wasn't around a lot. And my mother was with me all the time and I was growing and I'm, I'm a large man. So, you know, I'm six, four. <laughs> so I don't know. I don't know if you have any kids, but if you can I imagine. <laughs> and they yep. were tall. They were big kids. Yes. Yep. Yep. And yep, yep. I'm five, two on a good day. Okay. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So you understand. So I do. it requires a lot of attention and energy. And when we have lived through trauma, it's very difficult for us to do. And so it was difficult for her and she didn't know what to do. And the resources that, that were, that she had in her life at this time encouraged her to place me out of the home. And so she did. And it was, it was really an interesting, it was, I mean, it was psychologically, I've done a lot of work on this Mm. um, and it was a very fascinating experience because on the one hand, mom and dad loved me very much. It was a very conservative Christian home they grew up in. And in that environment, there wasn't a lot of exposure to the difficulty in the world. While we did talk about it and we Mm. were aware of it, I wasn't living in connection to people who were struggling the way that I was when I went and lived in those group homes. And so it, it was confusing as a child living through that. Being in that environment was very new and mm. very frightening for me, yeah. for, that, for that little boy that was so sheltered. And I learned a lot about the world and I, I'm, I will forever be grateful for what I learned. It, while I think some insulating from the pain and the suffering of the world can be helpful to a point. I think it also, for me, it prevented me from having the resilience to, to meet the suffering and the intensity of the characters that existed in that world that I was now exposed to. And so I had to learn. I learned to adapt. And the beautiful thing about us as organisms is that we can adapt to almost anything given the right support and there was always someone there to support me, even when the family wasn't. And I think that's one of the things that helped me to make it through the way I did. I think a lot of people who would have lived through what I lived through might have been in jail or, or overdosed or, or dead. And I, I knew people who died from all sorts of things. But, you know, I think when we have that tether, someone somewhere that can be that source of co-regulation, so to speak, because we are relational in, in, in nature, that that helps us to get through these, these kinds of circumstances. And it did for me. Yeah. And at, at such a young age, I mean, it sounds reasonable and well-pathed now. <laughs> and yeah, I, having had several clients who were in the foster system and, you know, basically they have said, we're not for, for Profession for their football career, they would have either been dead or in jail. Yeah. And because there was a helper and it could have been whether it was a teammate or another coach or a coach, you know, a football coach, not a life coach, 
that's what helped them get through. Otherwise, they wouldn't be they wouldn't be here. Yeah. Well, and 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 when I think about it, I think about the community aspect. Right? They're surrounded by people that could love and care for them. Even though the context was different than a family, they still had that connection. And biologically, we have this need. It's 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 embedded in the structure of how we grow, where where it's just a part of us. We have this need to be in community. Without community, we as an organism, we we die. You know, we can't survive. So those are the, the most important component of anything, of getting through anything is the support. It's having the right support, I think. Right, right, right. For your own experience, you know, as it relates to this particular conversation and this podcast, Trauma Hiders Club, were you someone who hid your trauma? Absolutely, yeah. 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 Up until recently, most people didn't really know much of anything about my story. I don't mm. talk about it a lot because I don't have a need to talk about it. I don't identify with a lot of the experiences that I've had while I've grown tremendously as a result of living through them. But I, but for the longest time I hid, absolutely. I pretended like it didn't happen. I smoked a lot of weed or I drank a lot of alcohol or I used other substances to escape, but you can't escape what lives inside. Our body tells a story, whether our mind wants to admit it or not, whether our mind is aware of it or not, or rather than saying our mind, our consciousness is aware of it, right? And, and so I, I, yeah, absolutely, I hid. I, I was ashamed of my experiences. I was ashamed of the abuse. I was ashamed of living in those homes. I was ashamed of being arrested. I was ashamed of all of these things. Mm-hmm. Like it would mean something about the, my character. It would mean I was less than somehow. Right. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. My trauma equals filthy, dirty, broken, unworthy, un- really unlovable. Yeah. The deepest part. Yeah. 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 And I think that's what, for, I get chills when hearing you say that. I mean, I think most of us who've lived through difficulty and through suffering to that kind of a degree can, we have a similar story. Right. Yeah. Or we've, or we've had a similar story about it. Right. I have the story. The story doesn't have a hold on me. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. Such an important distinction. (laughs) Right. Right. Yeah. So, you know, it seems to me, Will, that nothing held you back. (laughs) <laughs> At least that's that's what that, that's the experience I'm having. Like here's a man who who kind of went from place dream to dream, curiosity to curiosity. And while there were roadblocks, man, you you are an expert navigator. <laughs> I can say that in hindsight. Right. And and living through it, I was confused and scared and lost and didn't know what the hell I was doing. I was terrified half the time. I was very hard on myself, telling myself I was irresponsible or, you know, I wasn't like the rest, didn't have those great massive successes early on in life, you know, and, and watching others do it. And so, so I think there is an innate in, in me, I, I'm not sure where it comes from. And I've, I've been curious about this in, in myself. There's an innate agility and flexibility with life. and and I thought we all had it. Mm, yeah. And, and I, be, I still, there's a part of me that believes we all do. It's just, I think that it's not cultivated in most of us. And it seems to be innate in me. 
and it has been most of my life. There's this agility and this flexibility where I'm absolutely willing to be flexible in situations where other people have a tendency to be rigid. And that lends itself to being able to, to navigate with what looks like ease through all sorts of these difficult, interesting experiences. It was right. especially helpful living in Peru. Sure. I yeah, right. Did you know the language? Nope. <laughs> <laughs> Not at all. You know, it's interesting because when you, when you talked about, you know, going into a group home and having lived in a conservative Christian household and something I heard you say was not necessarily having that resilience at that age. And yet you did. I did. You did. I... Yeah. Yeah. Really, really incredible. How can, I guess I'm jumping into what you're doing now. So the transition into doing the work that that you're doing. How would one, I guess your work is specifically for coaches, isn't it? It's for helpers, helping professionals of I all see. kinds. So facilitators, we've had a doctor, we've had some therapists and coaches and facilitators from uh, retreat centers. We've had an NLP company that we worked with, a doula, two doulas, mindfulness practitioners, body workers, really anybody that works with other humans. Yeah. Yeah. I hear that. Okay. My question is what would happen to us if we leave our trauma unchecked with a disconnect from the experience, the story, and what's happening in our body? What would happen if we left this unchecked and we just continued onward, ignored it? Well, it's a great question. A lot of things, I think it's situational, but I'll paint a picture with a couple of options of what could happen. Our health conditions could stay the same or get worse. We might have more and more difficulty relating with people. Sleep would be impacted, difficulty focusing. Or the converse of this might be that we might build a multi-billion dollar empire, but remain miserable inside, driven by a need to achieve or to succeed or to amass wealth, driven by the turning away from that which was too much. Right? We might see habituated physical patterns, muscle patterns that linger or continue to, to root in. Uh, we can see this with the way people age, the curling that sometimes happens, the stiffening of certain muscles. Right? And those are oftentimes just habituated patterns, so like habit patterns from trauma over time. And they just get tighter and tighter and tighter, and the body reflexively keeps moving further and further and further into these shapes. We might see the same relationship pattern playing out over and over and over and over again, endlessly with whoever you're with. I think there are a lot of different possibilities here if we let this go unchecked. But all of them are suffering. A lack of capacity to live in the present moment. We're robbing ourselves of life. We're resisting living because that's the most intelligent thing to do because it's too much to be with what was once too much that was overwhelming. It was too much for us to process. And so that memory of that lingers on and lives in a loop. And we just live in that loop until somebody comes along and says, hey, there's a way out. Or until we become aware of it enough that we can ask for help. Yeah, that's really, that's really, really beautiful. And 
at the same time, I have this, this overwhelming fear that most of the world does not know that there's a way out. And most of the world can't talk about it. Right. And this is why I love your mission. Because if we can't have a frank conversation, clear conversation that's destigmatized, removed of the shame and the layers, if we can't have that conversation, there's zero possibility of us even starting the journey of healing. Absolutely impossible. Right. Brene Brown's work is so important yeah. in, in, that, in that way because she's talking about shame and shame is that which prevents us from talking about Absolutely. this. But I believe this is embedded in all cultures, mm-hmm. in religion, in politics, in social structures. And it prevents us from having these conversations in a way and naming the thing that's real. Right. 100% of human beings experience trauma. Absolutely. 100%. And people, people hear me say that and they're like, nah, I've never lived through And I'm like, have you ever stubbed your, you know, right. stubbed your toe? I mean, but you know, it's anything that was too much, too fast for our system to process. We will all experience something that's too much for our system to process. And that's okay. It's a, just a part of living. It's how we meet that. And if we can't talk about it, then we, we, we can't meet it. We can't address it. And the way our, our, our organism grows, it's reflexive and responsive to those things, but we're not aware of those reflexes and responses, you know? Right. And the choices we make around that, right? That's right. That's right. We have 100% of us, even if we were never aware of any trauma that we had before, and that's, you know, maybe that's another show, but we've all lived through this pandemic. Yeah. Right? This is this... We've lived through a trauma. We didn't see it coming. It's this, It's a car crash. Here we are. That's yeah. absolutely true. That is absolutely right. Yep. And every one of our cultures together, all around the world at the same time, we have collectively been living through an experience that happened like that. Yep. And some of us are re- more resourced than others. Right. Yeah. Well, I'm glad that you exist. <laughs> right. <laughs> Thank you. You too. Yes, that we're here for a reason and and we're here for a reason now. So tell me, Will, what are you most excited about right now? Oh. Is there anything new for you? Well, those are definitely two different questions in my Uh, mind because what I'm most excited about right now is being here with you. This is a very exciting and fun, even though I'm talking in a a, a softer voice, this is a very fun and exciting experience. I'm so happy that you're on the mission that you're on, Karen. It's just so good. What's new, my mother and I are planning a, a transformational event of sorts this summer, maybe this fall. And... We're recording a little bit of promotional material for it on Monday. And so that's new and exciting. Do you want to tell us about it? Uh, I think I'll leave a little mystery. So it's right. the, the pathway to healing. Okay. Embodiment as, as a pathway and presence and what that means. So some of the things that we've talked about to, today might be interwoven in that. But really my bigger mission, which is ending suffering. And, and, I, and I, I set it as one of those big missions that's impossible for me to achieve in my lifetime. You know, how could I possibly end suffering? 
And I'm not just talking about my own. I mean, suffering, a lack of living in the present, a lack of ability to be here in the here and now. But let's be more practical and, and less dreamy for a second. Um, the the program today, the, the day that we're recording this, I received a notification that we filled the May 2021 round of trauma and somatics. Nice. It's very early and we have 20 wonderful humans that are coming through the program. And so that's wonderful. And it's just the beginning. It's just the start. We've already got some that are committed for September. And so we run it three times a year right now, January, May, and September. And we may do some in-person stuff at some point too, to really expand on the techniques that we're using. And that's really exciting too. We're taking the same approach that we take with working with human beings with an organism with this particular company, titration, incremental increases. So as to prevent any explosions or... Mm or too much from happening. Yeah. Right. So we want to prevent our growth from being too quick. I love that. So that the integrity is maintained. I love that. Right. The universe tells us, or at least the universe we're in tells us to scale, scale, right? Yep. It does. Yeah. And I love where you're looking. Right. Right. I love where you're looking. Right. Integrity. And right. This is, this is tender important, really caring, loving work. Scale doesn't fit in. No. And I think at some point we're going to want to reach lots and lots of people. And it's important to me that we maintain our integrity the whole way through, the whole way through, because what makes this work work is the intimate nature of it and, and the integrity with which we approach it. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. I really... What I really get from you, Will, is safety, right? Right. And that's, as a trauma survivor, you know, the world for me, or at least the world that I have believed the world to be, is unsafe. Mm -hmm. Well, that's what happens. Yeah. That's what happens to us when we live through something like that. Our, right. our, the natural, most intelligent response is for our alarm system to go off more regularly, right? And Again, why we, we thought it was important to include Stephen Porges' work in, in our training in polyvagal theory, because mm-hmm. it's the science of safety, essentially. I mean, here's the map to that. And safety's yeah, I mean, you're, you're speaking right to it. Safety is the key. If our clients don't feel safe with us, and it's not up to us to say, hey, you're safe here. It's up to us to create the right conditions for their body to feel safe. Yes. Yeah. I love and when that. that. Yeah. And when that happens, our mind has room to do what the mind can do. Our, our minds are amazing. They're so powerful and they can only do so much when our body, when our, our natural, our more primal impulses inhibit that. Right. Right. I, I remember even, even in such a safe place and doing my EMDR therapy and every, I mean, you know, months and months spent preparing to really go deep in with all my resources, all my safe places, safe. and yet it still crept in, right? Like, ah, ah, yeah, which isn't a great description, but the threats, I allowed the threats to come in. Of course, they, having spent many years living in a hypervigilant and threatened state. That's right. Yeah. Well, and it's normal, right? So we don't want to be, my perspective is that 
I wouldn't want to live a life that's devoid of range. What I want is to be able to meet the peaks and valleys and bounce back. You know, I want to be able to have that fear and come back to a baseline that's not overly supercharged, which is essentially what resilience is. Mm -hmm. It's the ability to, to, you know, come back into our window of tolerance, so to speak. And you're speaking to it. You know, when we go to, to work the, the memories of that, which was too hard, we got to come in con into contact with bits of that, which is too hard. Right. And, and we feel that again and feeling that in a different way, if it's done right, we, we feel it in a titrated way and it doesn't become so overwhelming, but when it's not done correctly, <laughs> we're right back into it and we, we can get lost and we're remembering that experience. And next thing you know, what we, we do, we, we do what, but anything would do, we shut down. Right. Or we run away or we push away or, we get, or whatever it might be. That, that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Really nice. So you filled the next session and I'm looking forward to participating in September. Oh, we're looking forward to having you. Yeah. That, this is going to be great. Is there anything you want listeners to take a look at with your work or anything you want to point to? I rarely open up my work to one-on-one -on -one clients, but I have a spot that's open and it probably will be for the next six months as I'm interviewing people for it. So if, if somebody listens to this during that time and they want to reach out to me, they can, they can reach out to me at will at willreason.com, which is R-E-Z-I-N. But more than anything, the, the work that Ariana and I are doing with the somaticcoachtraining.com trauma and somatics program is it's, it's my heart right now. And we want as many people as possible to come through that and as many practitioners, but you don't have to only be a practitioner. You can be a consultant that works with other humans because this will change the way you work in the world to change the way you live. I mean, we're giving practical tools that you get to apply on yourself. You know, how, how do we as humans interact with other humans. I mean, I think we all need to learn this. <laughs> we sure do. We, we, we definitely need a retraining. We have not. Yes. yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I often say to uh, some friends, this should be a part of the domestication process that we go through as children. This so should be in necessary and included. If I knew how to meet activation, yeah, I wouldn't inhibit the natural survival responses in the same way. Right. right? I would yeah. know what to do with the energy. I would know how to be with it and it wouldn't linger on, you know, trauma is that lingering mm. psychosomatic response to something that was overwhelming. Right. Yeah. It's not the actual event. We can live through intensity all day long, but we are aside from other domesticated animals. We are one of the few creatures on our planet that, that has that lingering. And I believe it, it's, it's a fault in our own process of domestication. Mm. You know, it's that repressive part. Mm -hmm. It's so true. Yeah. I hadn't thought about that. Like when you think of animals, yeah, you know, they can be traumatized, right. But they keep on doing the thing, right. Uh -huh. Well, I would say that very few animals end up traumatized from experiences with the exception that, that we know of, 
of animals that are in captivity and have been yeah. domesticated. Right. But the process of domestication is a process of teaching the organism to inhibit its mm. natural responses. Right. So if I learn to inhibit the response that's coming up inside of me, over time, I then train myself to inhibit that which is real inside. So, and, and the lingering of that like overwhelming response is often a result of me inhibiting my body's natural impulse, the impulse to shake during shock, the impulse to move my arm after an accident. I might be tied to a board. I might be told to stop moving. I might be bombarded with questions instead of having a compassionate listener next to me. And here's a really good example. I wrote something on social media the other day. I was flying from Austin, Texas to Bend, Oregon, and I had a stop, a layover in Seattle. And during that layover, I got out of the airplane and I decided I was going to walk to the bathroom and I had my mask on and I was carrying my my backpack on my back and I had a little bag of food. And as I was walking towards this particular restroom, I saw a man on the floor with three people around him. And he was, he was saying, I'm, I'm going to pass out. And I looked down and I could see that he had urinated on himself. And the people didn't seem to know what they were doing. They didn't seem to know what to do. And I, in a, in a couple of moments, I could tell that he was diabetic. They were trying to test his blood and he was passing out sitting position into a laying down position. And so I stopped and I was like, I think I'm needed. What makes the difference in situations like this for a person living through it is, do they have somebody that can gently, calmly be with them without telling them that it's going to stop, without telling them that, that it's going to be okay? But rather than doing that, being with them, letting them know through presence that whatever happens, someone's here. Yeah. What a lucky man that you yeah. happened to be walking by. And I stayed with him until the paramedics arrived. Wow. And, and then the paramedics arrived and one of the guys was just like bombarding him with questions. And I kept my hand on his shoulder and reminding him that I was there. Mm. And he cried a couple of times and he shook a little bit a couple of times. And I encouraged him to stay with those experiences and I encouraged the paramedic to slow down. Hmm. And I gave the paramedic some of the information that he was trying to get from the man to soften the experience, right? So sure. that intensity and that forcefulness is the last thing that a person who's experiencing, his blood was like 375 or something like that. Whoa. And climbing. And he, has, he had a heart condition and hmm. all kinds of things. And he was afraid that he was dying, which makes sense. Yeah. And rather than say, you're not dying, I said, I know you're afraid. I'm right here with you. Right? Because as humans, what do, we, what do we need? We need to know that someone's there so that we can get through it. We don't need necessarily somebody to tell us that we can get through it. You know, we, we, we know that we can get through it when somebody's there. And so that's that compassionate companion, so to speak. And he seemed to be okay. They took him to the hospital. But it's a good example of applying this trauma-informed approach to living. And it's a good example of what might prevent people from holding on to or inhibiting these responses. In his book, In an Unspoken Voice, Peter Levine talks about his experience getting hit by a car. And there was someone there, a pediatrician, I think is what, how he tells the story, that was soft and gentle with him when he was disoriented. And having that person there was what, what helped him, one of the things that helped him. And then I think in the paramedics, in the ambulance, he was able to move his arm, which helped him to 
renegotiate some of that, the motor memory that was stuck. So all these little subtle things, but if we all knew these things, right, we right. would know how to meet those situations and, it, and it would, we, wouldn't, we wouldn't hang on to it. Our bodies wouldn't need to. Hmm. And it would make it easier for our minds to process it, I think. Wow. Really beautiful. Will, I'm so honored to have this conversation with you, to connect with you and the force that you are in the world, the force of gentle, beautiful, vital, loving care and safety. And look, you're just, you're like Superman, right? Or Batman. <laughs> you saw the signal and you went for it. Yeah, it is, it is my pleasure, my honor, and I'm really glad to know you. Thank you for those kind words, Karen. It's, a, it's been a pleasure to be here with you. You've been listening to the Trauma Hiders Club podcast. For more episodes, head over to my website where you'll find links to resources mentioned and all the ways you can listen on your favorite podcast platform. And if you're ready to fight, discover the rules of Trauma Club. Head over to KarenGoldfingerBaker.com.